And as you're turning to John chapter 13, I'm reminded as we look at this passage tonight of an old song. Um, I, I love new songs. I also love old songs. This song first appeared printed uh, back in 1899. Uh, and it's, it's a traditional song. Maybe you've heard it before if you've grown up in church or kind of went to a church that did older songs. It's a very simple song. The lyrics go, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? How many of you have heard this song before you're familiar with it? It's usually done uh, very dramatically. It's a passionate song. The lyrics goes, Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And then the next verses say, Were you there when they nailed Him to the tree? Were you there when they laid Him in the tomb? And were you there when God raised Him from the tomb? It's, it's a powerful song. It's an emotional song. It's a penetrating question. Were you there when they crucified the Lord. Well, in one sense, none of us were there historically. We, we live 2,000 years later. But in another sense, when we understand what Jesus was doing, we very much were there as He died. And we were there as they nailed Him to the cross. And we were there as they laid Him in the tomb and as God raised Him from the dead. But I, maybe sometimes you wonder, what would it have been like to actually have been there? Like what would it have been like to see Jesus carrying the cross? To see Him after He's been spit upon and mocked? To see Him actually nailed and put up and left to die on the cross? It would have been a powerful scene. And in one sense, because we have four Gospels and all four Gospels talk about this, in one sense we can get an idea, we can get details, we can picture in our mind's eye what it was like to see Jesus die. That's why the Gospels are so helpful. We know it's it's nice to have an eyewitness that describes an event for us, not just tells us about it. Well, that's a little bit of what we have here tonight in this passage we're looking at in John 13. While, while all four Gospels give us an eyewitness account of Jesus' death on the cross, it's only in the Gospel of John that we get an eyewitness account of Jesus' conversation with His disciples before the cross, where He's explaining to them, here's what's about to happen. You know, the most significant event in the world, the event that literally changed the timeline, uh, this event, what happened the night before? And while the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk a little bit about what happened, John gives us these vivid details, this, this in-depth, almost secret information, his own personal experience of being with the Lord as the Lord is talking with his disciples the night before he dies. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, we introed this section. We're going to be spending the next few months in what's typically known as the Upper Room Discourse. It's Jesus meeting with His disciples. Uh, it's from John 13 to 16, and then His prayer in 17. And it's a very, uh, we said, it's a very tender chapter. You know, there's some weighty theology in these four chapters. There's some heavy stuff going on. But if you read it, Jesus talks to His disciples so affectionately and with so much care and he says, hey, I'm going to be going. I'm going to die for your sins. So there's some things I want you to know if you're going to be my disciples in this world. And what I think John is doing by giving us this personal account is we get to hear what Jesus is saying not only to the 12 disciples, but to anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus. For anyone here who's a follower of Jesus, we get to see Jesus' very heart for His people and Jesus' expectation for His followers. And so we're going to look at this passage tonight. And we're going to see uh, what we can learn from it. We're going to read John 13, and I'm going to read verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. So we're going, to, we're going to tackle some big sections as we do this. 
and then try to kind of get a grasp on everything going on. So let's read it together. John chapter 13, I'll start in verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's very word. Many of you have heard before the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, sometimes we'll kind of laugh at that question because it's trivialized and it's foolish, but, but here we kind of ask, uh, well, what, what did Jesus do? What is Jesus doing here? We're shocked. It's the night before he's going to die and rather him asking for comfort, like we said last week, he's comforting his disciples. He's giving them instructions before he passes away. Well, what we need to do in this passage is we need to think about what it is that Jesus is doing because we are called to be followers of Jesus. We're called to be His disciples. And if we're going to be His disciples, we need to know what He's doing so we can know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. 
And so tonight in our passage, I want you to see three things about Jesus. Uh, three different ways I want you to see uh, who Jesus is and, and how this passage uh, tells us again about the Savior, about Christ. So three different things about Jesus. Number one, here's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see Jesus, our Master and Model Servant. I want you to see Jesus, our Master and Model Servant. You remember the scene from last time. Jesus had just, uh, just washed the disciples' feet. He had taken off His outer robe and done something that was humiliating, that was lowly, uh, that servants wouldn't typically do. He got low and He washed the disciples' feet. We talked about how this was a common practice. That, uh, that uh, you know, because they didn't have paved roads, the roads were dirty, people's feet would get nasty, and so at dinner, usually a lowly servant would come and wash people's feet. Well, no one was washing feet before this supper, so Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And Peter was shocked by this, but Jesus said, I've got to do it. And now here he asks this question, verse 12. He says, do you understand what I have done? And to really understand what Jesus has done, he says, you need to, before you understand what I've just done, you need to remember who I am. He says, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus is both teacher and Lord. That is, He gives instructions, we're to learn from Him, and we are to submit to Him. I think about the imagery of maybe in the, in the old days if someone was going to get an apprenticeship as a blacksmith, a sort of indentured servanthood. Like they, they would move away from their family as a young man, and, and the blacksmith would be both their teacher and their boss. They need to obey them, but they're also supposed to learn from them so they might mimic and take on the job that they're doing. Jesus, as Christians, is our master. That is, Jesus gets to call the shots in our life. To be a Christian is not just to say, I believe in the morality of Jesus or even the existence of Jesus. To be a Christian is to say, I submit willingly, happily to Jesus. I want every area of my life to be in obedience to Him. That's what it means to have Jesus as our master. In fact, Jesus Himself in Luke chapter 6 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That's Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Master and not do what I say? Uh, so so that's, what, that's who Jesus is. He's our Master and our Teacher. And what does He do here? What does the Master want us to learn about obedience to Him? Well, let's take a look if we would. We're in John chapter 13. And let's look at what Jesus says here in verses 14 and 15. Because what I love about Jesus is Jesus never instructs us to do something that He Himself hasn't done. He always instructs His disciples to walk in His ways. What He has done, what does He say here? He says, verse 14, If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now what is Jesus saying here? What is He telling us? Again, verse 15, He says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What does this mean? Well, I'll tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean, and I think some of us talked about it in groups last week, this doesn't mean that we as Christians should like regularly get together and like wash each other's feet. That's not what this is talking about. Like I don't have a bucket under here. I don't have towels or pumice stones or, you know, we're not going to talk about files and cuticles or anything like that. So, by the way, I had to Google all those things. I don't actually know what any of those are. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. In, in, in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is giving a picture 
of what He's about to do on the cross. This is what He said to Peter last week when Peter said, you won't wash My feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in Me. Uh, What Jesus is doing is in a smaller picture uh, showing what He's about to do in a great scale by dying on the cross for sins. The cross, when we think about the cross, the cross is an act of service. It's Jesus serving His bride, serving His people. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Right? So he's, He serves His people and the greatest act is when He does that on the cross. Uh, let's take our Bibles here and let's hold this to a passage I referenced last week. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Um, Philippians chapter 2. We'll, we'll, we'll save something here in John 13. But Philippians chapter 2 sort of gives the theology of John 13. It's, it's Paul explaining the exact same sort of heart uh, of Jesus and in, in all of who Jesus is. So Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse uh, 3. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you uh, look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, what that's saying is it's very similar to what Jesus was doing there. Jesus has a seat at the table. He humbles himself and removes his his robe and takes on the servant's towel and washes, and then he goes back to his position. That's what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. He, Though he exists in the form of God from eternity past, he humbled himself by taking on a body, by taking on weakness, by taking on a body that was tempted with sin, even though he never did sin, and he humbled himself by dying as a servant for his people. It's exactly what's going on. And what it says here in Philippians 2, it says right there in verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this attitude, the same attitude Jesus had, we're to have it. Back to John chapter 13. Back to John 13. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them, look, you have a special position. I mean, in verse 20, he says, uh, whoever receives you receives me. You know, what he's telling them is, hey, you have the position now that you're representatives of me. I mean, what a cool privilege of that. The God of the universe, we get to represent him. He says something very similar in verse 16. He says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Again, we've been sent by Jesus. We get to do ministry. We get to reach the world. We get to live in this life as representatives of Him. That's a cool thing that we get. But if Jesus was so exalted, so highly exalted, and He served, then we're supposed to do the same thing. Here's the point. All disciples who have been served by Christ will serve like Christ. Let me say that again. All real disciples who have been served by Christ will serve like Christ. You cannot know Christ the servant without also having a mindset to serve. Now let's think about that. What do we mean by serving? Because I think some of us, when we think serving, we think slots that need to be filled. 
We think name tags. I mean, like I've said before, we, we know this at our church. There are so many things that happen to have, have to happen at our church. There's rooms that have to get set up. There's parking that has to be done for the women's event tomorrow. There's someone that has to run, run sound for that. There's people who are in the kitchen tonight getting food ready for that for tomorrow morning. Every event we do, we have so many people that need to do stuff. And sometimes when we think serving, we think, why well, I should jump in and fill some of these slots so I can kind of get serving out of the way. And, and by the way, like, that is a thing we do need. Like, if you've got time, you want to do it, do that. But, and, and you should do that. But when I think about serving, again, what did Philippians say? Serving is an attitude. Serving is a mindset that says, I'm not just looking for my fun event. I'm not showing up at things thinking, how can I get the most out of it? I'm showing up thinking, how do I serve others in this? How do I be a blessing to others in this? There's tons of positions. Children's ministry, student ministry, setup. There's so much stuff to do at our church. But it's the, when we talk about service, it's the attitude that says, how can I serve others? How can I be a blessing to others? Uh, I, I want us to look at one other verse, and then we'll come back to John 13. Go to, um, go to Galatians chapter 6. This is just a quick one. and This one has been on my heart since I taught Joshua 5. I've been, I've been thinking about it. Galatians chapter 6. Uh, verses 9 and 10. Here's what, again, we're supposed to be about. This is, by the way, normal Christian attitude. This is not for super Christians, advanced Christians. This is for those who have been served. It says, verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Again, let us not grow weary of doing good. Verse 10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the house Hold of faith. What does it look like to serve people? Sometimes it means wearing a name tag and taking care of a task that needs to be done. A lot of times what it means is like, hey, you actually ask someone, how could I be praying for you? And then you do something totally, totally countercultural. You actually pray for them later. You don't just get the pr collect prayer requests and don't do it. You show up thinking, how, who can I encourage today? Who can I reach out to? Hey, maybe today is there someone I could text? Is there someone that needs to be reminded of some scriptures? Is there someone I just need to check in on? Hey, is there someone that's new? They don't really know anybody. Can I, can I welcome them? Can I greet them? Can I, do they need a ride? Do I need to offer them a ride? What are ways I can inconvenience myself to do good to others? Like there is no name tag for the person that like meets new people, uh, makes sure that they understand the gospel, invites them to lunch, uh, checks in on the midweek. Like we don't, we don't have people sign up for that role. Uh, but that's what service looks like, right? It's, it's having this mindset of how do I bless others? And by the way, in, in, our, in our culture, that's totally different than the way that people think about church. People think, is this church going to meet my needs? If it doesn't meet my needs, if it's not a good fit for my family, then we're going to move on to somewhere that doesn't maximize my service opportunity. We're going to move on to somewhere uh, where I could be most taken care of, where I can get, I could just kind of take and take and take, but I never give anything back. That's not what we're supposed to be about as disciples of Christ. We're supposed to be those who are actively looking to do good for others. This is what Jesus said there in John 13. If we go back to John 13, if you look at the very end, and we'll hit this later in point number three, but when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't, hey, the, the world's going to know you're my disciples because of your doctrine. The world's going to know you're my disciples because of where you spend your Sundays. Hey, both those things are critically important. You've got to be part of the family of God. 
You've got to believe the right things about Jesus. But they're going to know by your love. They're going to know because you don't have this like sentimental junior high biology class of like, I love that dude. What you have is a real deep affectionate where you are at cost going out of your way to do good for others. And so friends, are we loving Christ the way that He's loved us? If He has willingly died for our sins, are we loving others the same way? Are we loving others sacrificially, not just practically? I'll serve where I have time. Not, you know, you, you, you have limits, and we'll talk about that later. But, but real love's going to come at a cost, right? Jesus, the cross wasn't convenient for Jesus. And therefore, loving others shouldn't be convenient for us either. Do we love sacrificially, not selectively? Uh, do we love everybody, or do we just love those that are easy to love? Love those who are going to reward us back? Jesus talks about that. He says, when you throw a feast, don't throw a feast for people that can pay you back. Do good things for those who have no opportunity to do good back to you. Because that's what real love looks like. Do we love other with our time and our habits? Uh, are, are we so sometimes engrossed in our phone or our media schedule or whatever kind of fun things we have that we've actually left no time to do good or service for other people? Notice what Jesus says. Verse 17. He says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? Do them. Blessed are you if you do them. If you're not loving others, are you really following Jesus? Are you really following Him? Some of you know a guy, uh, who's a, he's kind of a semi-famous pastor. He's got a guy by the name of Paul Washer. Some of you have heard of him before. And I've had an opportunity to, to interact with him before. And I remember him saying something one time where he was, he was saying, uh, he was saying, uh, nothing will stop you from being used by God except prayerlessness and a lack of love for people. And then he goes in on this. He says, he goes, you're not more important than anyone. You're the servant of all. And if you don't have that mindset, God can't use you. And I just wonder for us, are there people that, uh, that we have a lack? Do, do some of us have talents to serve, but we don't because we just don't love others? We're only looking out for number one. If you've been served, you must serve. Let's move to point number two. What else do we need to see about Jesus in this passage? Well, second, I want you to see Jesus, our suffering and sovereign servant. Jesus, our suffering and sovereign servant. As we read this passage, you understood there is a sort of darkness to this passage as well. There's a sobriety to this passage. Uh, because Jesus is being betrayed. And John gives us details uh, that are far, uh, far more clear, far more personal than the other Gospels do. Now, in a real sense, Jesus knew that He was going to be betrayed. Okay, So back in John chapter 6, verse 70, He said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. That's John chapter 6, verse 70. Um, he says there in verse 10, but not, not every one of you is clean. And here in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. But look if you would at verse 21. 21, Jesus, uh, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I think so often we read the Bible like it's like the most like boring, 
history book ever imagined. Like the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off is just like reciting, he's just going, and then Jesus said, da da da, and just like, that's not how we read it. What's it say? It says he's troubled in his soul when he says, truly, truly, one of you is going to betray me. He's, he's agitated. He's emotional. He's shocked. He's in turmoil. You could can, can even use the word dread. Why? why? Why is he so... I mean, isn't he God? Doesn't he know the end from the beginning? Why, why is he so uh, thrown off and shook uh, by this? Well, I think there's a few different reasons why this could be. Uh, I think one of them is you've got to remember Jesus is truly God, but Jesus is truly man. And, and Judas was his, his friend. Uh, it says the Scripture will be fulfilled in verse 18. The Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas was one of the twelve. Uh, Jesus had a real relationship with Judas. Uh, he wasn't like mocking him or trolling him the whole time. There was a real affection there. I think that's also is happening because Jesus understands that his death is imminent. If you turn back one chapter to chapter 12, verse 27, this again is interesting. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Like he knows all the all the mockery he's going to face, all, all the physical pain he's going to face. He also knows that in a way that we don't quite understand, God is going to let the lights on the world go dark for three hours, and He's going to crush His Son with the wrath of God, with the wrath that should be for us. And He says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so perhaps Jesus is troubled by this because He knows what's coming. He knows that Judas is going to set off this chain of events that cannot be stopped. That's going to result in Him bearing the wrath for our sin. I mean, Isaiah 53 says that, that Yahweh the Father was pleased to crush Him. That our, that our sins were placed upon Him. And Jesus is not looking forward to that. Perhaps another reason why he's in turmoil over this is the confusion over, of the disciples. Remember it said up in verse uh, 3 and 4 that he loved his disciples. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the max. He desperately cares for these guys. And he knows. He can tell. They have no idea what's about to happen. And they are about to be rocked by this. That's why you have this conversation. He says, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples look at one another. They're, you know, they don't all look at Judas. Oh, really? We had no idea. Like They, they don't know. And then Peter does this little thing like, hey, John, ask him. He's trying to be really subtle. Ask him. And so John asked him. John says, and Jesus says, the one whom I give the bread. And Jesus gives the bread to Judas and says they still don't know. Like Judas leaves and they're like, oh, he's probably giving money to the poor. Like they have no, they are all about to be blindsided. They're like in 24 hours, they're all going to be like, wait, Jesus died? And, and one of us betrayed him? How did this happen? And so I think part of this might be his affection for his disciples. And I think there's another reason for Jesus' emotion here as well. Because I, I think it would be very hard not to be emotional when you see the resistance of Judas. Like we have no reason to believe that Jesus didn't also wash Judas's feet. And, and Judas is hearing the first reference to the betrayer. And he knows. And Judas hears the second reference to being a betrayer. 
He hears about the bread being given. And, and look if you would at verse 26. It said, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I mean, picture that scene. Here is Judas. He knows what he's about to do. He knows that Jesus knows what he's about to do. And here's this bread sticking out right in front of him. And it's almost like, do I take this? Like, this is it. If I do this, I am telling Jesus that I'm doing this. And then he takes it. Jesus tells him what you do. Do quickly. I mean, amazing. Grace rejected. It's almost as if Jesus gives him one more chance to say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. And he doesn't do it. And so verse 30 says, though after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. John puts that there. He just throws that in. Like I, I don't feel like any of us were wondering what time it was at this point. And why does John throw it in? Well, I think he throws it in because it was night. And I think he throws it in because it's a very dark moment. It's night. Jesus is about to be betrayed. And yet, before we go on in this passage, I just want to ask, maybe that's tonight some of us. I mean, maybe some of us are here after saying no to Jesus so many times. Jesus, again, very graciously, is giving you one more shot. One more opportunity to say, are you sure you want to do this? There does come a last chance. Because this is it for Judas. Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn. Don't let that be true for you as well. What's also clear though here is that while Jesus is being betrayed, do you notice he's totally in control of the situation? Like, like he's in charge of all the details. Like what's going on? He knows it's Judas. Judas takes the bread. And what does he say to him? He says, what you are going to do, do quickly. He immediately, here's Judas trying to sneakily, command, or try to sneakily uh, betray Jesus. And Jesus commands him what to do next. And he does it. He's in control of the whole thing. He, he knows what's going on. Take a look, if you would, at verse 18. Uh, again, he said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, it says the Scripture uh, will be fulfilled. So if you're a, a good Bible student, you should all ask what question next? What Scripture will be fulfilled? So you guys are good. So take your Bible, go if you would, to Psalm 41. Psalm 41, because Jesus is relaying this psalm of David, and he's seeing himself. He, he understands this psalm to reflect the truth about who he is, what he's going through, and what God is about to do. So here's David again. He's, he's saying that God delivers his people. God sustains the one who's obedient. He, he's talking about his obedience, verses 1 through 3, and then in verse 4, he says, As for me, I said, O oh, oh Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me. For I have sinned against you. Now, that wouldn't be Jesus talking, but let's look at the rest of this. Uh, th by the way, this, this is David talking, but let me show you where Jesus is seeing. Here's what David says the rest. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. 
He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So this isn't a prophecy. David talks about his sin. Jesus didn't sin. But what this is, is Jesus is seeing what David's describing here. And he's seeing not only David's plight of being hated by all, even by his close friends, but he sees the deliverance as well. Jesus is also having this in mind. Not only will I be betrayed, but verse 10, But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delighted me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. See, Jesus knows how this is going to end. And so He's grieved for the moment, but He knows what's coming next. He's in control of it all. In fact, one more thing in verse John chapter 13. Let's turn back there. We'll be there the rest of our time. John chapter 13. Notice what he says here. Verse, eight, uh, verse 19. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. I'm telling you this, that I'm going to be betrayed, so that when I am betrayed, you might know who I am. And friends, even that word, the phrase there, the ESV says, I am He. I think most translations say, I am He. The He is not there. I, I think in the Greek, he's just saying, I am. It's another claim to deity. Uh, like God in the Old Testament says, I am who I am. It's Jesus claiming to be the I am. He's saying, you're going to know that I am God of gods and that I'm in control of all of this. And all of this was part of my plan when I am betrayed so surprisingly. That's amazing. Evil cannot undo His plan. And let's think about that for us. Let's, go, let's think back to point number one. Why are some of us reluctant to serve people in our lives? Some of us are reluctant because we have people that no matter how kind we are to them, they over and over again reject us. And even when we try to outdo them with kindness, they mock us. And we think, wait a second, I'm just going to give to this person, this relative, this boss, this coworker. I'm just going to keep giving and giving and giving to them. And I know it's not going to do anything. And the answer is, yeah. That's what Jesus did as well as He serves Judas. And so while you might suffer in this life for it, you can trust that Jesus sees it, Jesus knows it, and you will get your reward for that in eternity. And you do it, not because you're getting a reward now. You're doing it because Jesus served you. And so you serve others the way that He served you. Finally, let's move to number three, the, the end of our passage here. What we have seen, seen Jesus as our master and our model servant. We've seen Jesus as our suffering and sovereign servant. And finally, what I want us to see is Jesus, our matchless Savior. Jesus, our matchless Savior. One of the themes in the Gospel of John is this theme of light and darkness. It keeps coming up in the Gospel of John. And I'll read for you John 1, 4, and 5. You could jot it down. John 1, 4, and 5 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? It's, it's this theme of light and dark. We even have here, at the end here, it was night. And then in verse 31, it says, When He had gone out. Now remember, Judas now leaves. Judas is gone. The rest of this time, Judas is not in the room. And it's going to dramatically change the way Jesus talks. Now he's just talking to his people. 
And he has some things he wants to say to just his people. And here's how he begins. What does he start with? He says, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. What Jesus is saying here is now is the time for the Son to be glorified. Look back at John 12. He just said this in the chapter before. I want us to see this because when we talk about the glory of Christ, what we're talking about His beauty, His splendor, we're talking about Jesus as exalted and greater and, and more beautiful and holy than us. And the question is like, well, where do we see His glory? Well, He's already been telling us this. In John chapter 12, or 12, verse 23, it says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're like, awesome, the hour has come. Where the Son of Man, we're going to finally see Him in all His beauty and His, His magnitude and His holiness and His transcendence. What is it that we're going to see that shows us this? Well, it shows us this here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's glory by death. It's exaltation by humiliation. It's Jesus who is so great going low so that we might truly see how great Christ is. And why Christ is not just a great thing in our life. He is the thing in our life. The one we worship most supremely. The, the greatest priority and ultimately the only priority. It's all about Christ because of how He died for us. Let's look at this verse here. It's kind of funky language. Verse 31 says the Son of Man is now going to be glorified. That is now the, the, who Jesus is going to be put on display. He's the Creator who died for created sinners to be saved. That's amazing. He says the, the Father is going to be glorified in Him. So as we watch Jesus step towards Calvary, we not only see a willing servant, we see a, a Father who loved sinners that He would send His Son. So as we go forward in what's about to happen, we're going to say, wow, Christ is amazing. God the Father is amazing. And then as we keep going, it's going to say that God is going to glorify Him. He says, if God is glorified in me, if I magnify the Lord, then God's going to glorify Him in Himself. He's going to magnify me to bring us all glory. And you're like, what's happening there? How is that going to happen? How is God going to glorify Jesus in this? How is He going to put Jesus on display? Well, He does it immediately. And He's doing it in the future. Here's what I mean by that. As Jesus goes to the cross, you find these witnesses coming against Him who can't even get their story straight. And, and you've got Pilate saying things going, why? What evil has He done? And then you'll have a thief on the cross who goes, we are here because we're bad men. But this guy has done nothing wrong. And then you'll have a Roman soldier after he dies say, truly this was the Son of God. And so all throughout the cross, while it looks like Jesus is most being humiliated, you have confession after confession that there's no one like this person. No one as brilliant and worthy of following. And what he's talking about as well is future glory. Remember what it says in Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12 too, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew the glory that awaited Him. He knew He was going to be exalted as the one who died for sinners. That He was going to sit at the right hand of the Father. 
And so that's what he is talking about. He's talking about glory. He says in verse 33, little children, in a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's saying, I'm going to go do something no one else can do. And as we get to the end here, there's this really strange paradox that happens. I don't know if you caught it. Jesus says, I'm going to go do something that you cannot, you can't come with me. You can't do this. Only I can go die on the cross. And then he says, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And by this all people know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does he say? He says, hey, you can't do what I'm doing. And now because I've done it, I want you to go do that to others. Hey, you can't follow me in this. So I do, I want you to follow what I've done after. And you're like, wait, what? Like, you can't love like this. So I want you to love the way I've loved. Huh? You see that? It, it, to me, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. I, I just saw this like, what is he talking about here? Well, I think actually Peter helps us. Because Peter asks all the right questions. And Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Uh, where, what? Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow after. And, and Peter says, well, Lord, I, I do want to follow you now. I will lay down my life for you. Huh. What does that sound like? Lord, I want to follow you and do what you're doing. I'm even willing to die for you. Peter's like, Lord, I want to love you. And, and Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times for the end of the night. What do we do with this? Well, I think what this helps us understand is something that's been called the, the debtor's ethic. Let, let me explain it like this. Debtor, D-E-B, those silent B's will get you. D-E-B-T-O-R-S, debtor's ethic. Here's, here's what I mean by that. You've heard this said before, and maybe you've said this before, and if you've said this, don't be offended by it. I think people say this with really good intentions, and they probably don't mean what it sounds like. People say stuff like, the Lord has done so much for me, I want to repay Him back for all He's done. And it sounds really good, and it sounds really genuine. If you've said that, like, praise God, that's, that's a zealous heart. But here's the reality. We will never pay Jesus back for what He's done for us. Like, we will never love the way He's loved us in our sin. Even the good things we do, we're continuing to borrow grace that we might do them for His glory. And so what this begins to tell us is, again, as we love one another, it reminds us of our permanent relationship with Jesus. That we love because He loved us, but we will never love to the degree that He loved us. We'll never pay Him back in that same way. You know what's interesting is Peter will not lay down his life for Christ. Not yet. He will one day. And history tells us that Peter was probably crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified in the same way as the Lord. But first, Christ must lay down His life for him. See, as we as a church family try to love one another the way we've been loved, as we do that, it will never be about magnifying us. 
It will never be about highlighting the saved. It will always highlight the Savior. Like we're, we, we're called to love radically. We're called to love sacrificially. We're called to love persistently. And we're called to love like Christ. But we'll never love as much as Christ. Any love that we show in this group will only and always be just a small reflection of the way that we've been loved. If you're, if you're newer with us, you're trying to figure out Christianity and you're like, oh man, these are some really nice people here. They're friendly people. And I think we are, we got, a, we got a pretty friendly group, I think. I'm looking around here. I don't see any mean people here. But it's only because we've been loved. Not because we ourselves are good people, but God loved us when we weren't good people. That's our relationship with Him. He's our matchless Savior. And any love we show for others, we do so gladly because He loved us. Friends, He has loved us. Let us then love in the same way. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the love that You've shown us in Your Son. God, thank You that You pursued us and You died for us. You had Your Son hang on the cross for us. As we see Him going to Calvary with righteousness, He's doing it for us. As He goes willingly, He's doing it for us. As He's going with the affection for His disciples, we know He still has the same affection for us. And so, Father, we thank You and we give praise to Your Son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that seeing such a selfless love, we would not make the mistake of us making life about us. But we would willingly, happily, sacrificially, with no expectation of getting return, love others the way that You've loved us. Help us to do that, Lord so that you might be magnified. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.